todo el mundo. Pero eso fue realmente... Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the documentary, The Ventures, Stars on Guitars. This is your destination for all things rock, where the interviewees include musicians, authors, historians, filmmakers, and more. And now, on to the show. Jenny Tedesco is a longtime music lover and documentarian. He's produced segments for the televised Academy Awards, music videos for artists like Elton John and many others. He made the definitive documentary on the famous Wrecking Crew, and now he's done it again with his new film, the multi-award winning Immediate Family, featuring the best session musicians of the singer-songwriter era, the 1970s. That's my favorite decade for music. So let's get Denny on the line. Well, congratulations, first of all, on a fantastic film. Um, it's really so informative and well done. Thank you. Thank you very much. You did The Wrecking Crew, as so many people know. It's a really famous documentary now. Um, how are the projects similar? I mean, what attracts you to ensembles or session players to profile as opposed to single bands or artists? Um, I think it's, it's really relationships. I really enjoy um, growing up. You know, my dad went to work, you know, Tommy Tedesco went to work in his studios and he wasn't a solo artist, you know, he, you know, and I always looked at the the banter among musicians. I always love how they treat each other. I love how they they have a language of their own. And I don't uh, I don't play an instrument, by the way, but I, I just love how they, it all comes together for them. Yeah, and, and the same thing with the other film. You know, when I started that other film, I I, I was really stuck with a uh, problem in the film at the beginning when we were doing a rough cut. And it was like, they said, is it the story of your father or is it the story of these guys, the wrecking crew? And a friend who wasn't a filmmaker said, why don't you just add the line? This is the story of my father and his friends, the wrecking crew, his, his extended family, the wrecking crew. Mm-hmm. And I realized that is that was it. it. They are a family. And, is you know, you go to work, you spend more time with your colleagues 
than your actual family. And I, so when these guys approached me with this film and they said, you know, it's called, the band is called Immediate Family. I went, oh, that makes sense. I understood where it was coming from instantly. I, you know, and there was no question about what that meant. Yeah, and can you, for those who have not seen the film yet, who is in the sure. Immediate Family band and how did you initially meet them? Well, it came out of uh, my producers and Lisa Roy was um, the band's publicist and she pitched the idea to my producers um, who they said, what do, do you think Denny would want to do this? And I went and they came to me and said, oh, I, you know, I knew of the media family uh, kind of around town. I knew, but as soon as they said the players, I went, oh, yeah, it's Danny Kochmar. Also, his nickname's Cooch. Uh, Wadi Wachtel, the guitar player, um, Leland Scalar, bass player, and Russ Conkel, the drummer, and Steve Pistel, who I like to call the kid. He's like 10 years younger than them. Um, he plays guitar as well. And these the, the first four were the guys at the beginning of the singer-songwriter era. So they were doing like James Taylor's albums, Carol King's albums, Tapestry, uh, Joni Mitchell's Blue. Russ Kunkel did all three of those, you know, and then they go on to do everybody else's at that point. They take off as the new session players of the 70s. And not only do they play on the albums, they turn around and go on the road. And now we all start falling in love with these players. Now, you gave me a little rundown on which classic rock and folk songs they played on. Um, which one do you think was the most prolific? I think if you really... It's, it's, it's funny because the first two albums, see, what happens is Danny is, is friends with um, uh, James Taylor and like when they're in kids and during uh, high school, but they kind of meet at uh, the Cape in Boston. And so they end up doing a band in New York. And long story short, when James Taylor leaves Apple Records, they go to L.A. and all of a sudden they create another band just to, for James and Carol King is the side person, you know, the side man on the on piano. So they start doing sweet baby James album and then they do tapestry. I mean, those two albums right there just turns, turns music upside down. I mean, tapestry, I can't imagine how many that sold. And, you know, James Taylor is on the cover of time magazine at that point. So I think those albums were really the bedrock for these guys. Absolutely. And I understand that these session musicians were paid a flat fee too. No, not necessarily. What, what happens is with those, no, I don't, you know, I don't know how they were paid, but it can only go by what I know of growing up. You get paid a session fee and that session fee, if it was union, um, which I think they were, the, these were union gigs you get a residual if those songs, let's say, go to a movie or uh, okay. it goes to you'll uh, get airplay, let's say, in radio that changed years just recently, like in uh, Europe, they'll pay for radio play. You get a small bit, very small bit, but it adds up. So if a song goes into a movie or a commercial, you get another uh, royalty, but you're not getting album sales. You know, you don't get that. And um, and so that's how that works. Well, as you know, I made a, a music documentary about the ventures that Wadi is actually yeah. in. Yes, and you were kind enough to give me a lot of 
great advice when I was starting out because it was my first one. Um, but I'm wondering, what was the biggest obstacle uh, for you when making immediate family? Because mine was music clearances. Yeah. Boy, boy, that makes me cringe, music clearances. Um, for some reason, uh, maybe I'm just stupid or naive. I don't know why I thought I could do it again, but I did it again. Um <laughs> It's like childbirth. You forgot, about, you know, women say, oh, it's the most excruciating yeah, yeah. thing. A, and then they do it again. I'm going to use that, by the way. <laughs> use that line. It's all so. yours. Um, it is. I mean, because we're at the, you know, what if a record company said, no, you're not going to get any of these songs. That stops this projects in its tracks. And we've already started shooting because you can't pre-license music. So you got to hope, you know, that no, you know, everybody's going to play ball uh-huh. and not be, you know, we only have one song of all those songs that someone didn't want to play ball. And it was just a, a minor publisher who only had 35% of a, of one of the songs it was hurt so bad. And for some reason they wanted, they wanted a few more thousand. It's like, well, I can't give you a few more thousand because that means I have to pay everybody three more thousand and there's 80 songs. So you do the math. It ain't going to happen. So I had to pull it out. And that was the sad part because it was a uh, a, a, um, a good so a great solo from Danny Kochmar. I loved it. And but I had to pull it out. And that was unfortunate. That's the only time I ever felt that someone was taking advantage of something where they really didn't need to. But right. That's but, the favored nations clause yeah. for those who want to look it up. Yeah. And I and I gotta say the labels and the publishers were great. I mean, they have been very, you know. Their job is to make money for the artists and the musicians and the writers and all that and their companies. So I totally get it. And I went to college because of my father was a musician that got paid. So I have no problem making money. It's just there's the, the fine line of are you guys going too far and not being um, uh, realistic, being, you know, common sense. And but most of the time they've been great. Well, I'm wondering, you conducted the interviews. Were there any surprises or revelations um, that came to light as you were making the film? I, you know, what? I've, a lot of times I was learning on this because it happened so quickly. When the guy said yes, the next day they said Carol King can be, in, you know, interviewed in three weeks. And I went, uh-oh, uh, you know, <laughs> it took 19 years to make the last one. So I was like, OK, I got to do my research very quickly. You know, and you don't know really until you start making it as you remember all those things that come together and go, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't know that. And you kind of feel foolish. You kind of pretend like, you know, and you keep going. And then you, you know, the next interview, you know, a little more and a little more. And then stories start connecting. I think just seeing these art, I think what blew my mind is the consistency of the love and the respect that these artists had for these these musicians i mean there was no no doubt that i mean they all jumped in so quickly to do these interviews you know it was about those about these musicians that they love so much did you discover why or did people talk about musicians who are actually excellent guitarists themselves like james taylor or joni oh. mitchell or jackson brown why did they bring in augmentation you always need you know you, you got to fill you. I mean, they bring something that they can't do. 
Right. They, they always do. You know, I mean, you always bring, you know, you're not bringing a copy of yourself and you want a different sound. And, you know, like Joni Mitchell's a guitar player and she's a very rhythmic guitar player, you know, uh, very percussive, as uh, Russ Kunkel said. Um, you know, James plays, you know, fabulous guitar and uses bass, his thumb, you know, he plays bass along with his thumb. And so for Leland or whoever's playing with him has to figure out how am I going to put myself into this, this guitar player's plan? Um, you know, cause he's, you know, you either like ape as Leland said, what he's doing, or he has to fill in the blanks. Um, but you always, you're always having, uh, you're always filling in the blanks and you're always, you know, as you're adding your own touch to it. It was really impressive to see also the artists that they worked with that you got on camera as um, commentators. Can you tell the audience who some of them are, who they can look forward to seeing? Yeah, I mean, we had ooh, start off with Carol King, Jackson Brown, James Taylor, Linda Ronstead, uh, Phil Collins, Neil Young, David Lindley. Oh, not David Lindley. I wish David Lindley. That was the one I never got because he wasn't well. Um, David Crosby, uh, Keith Richards, Don Henley, uh, Stevie Nicks, Lyle Lovett. I'm sure I missed a few others, but I mean, we could have kept going, but you know what stopped us was uh, COVID. So in a weird way, COVID kind of like quickly, okay, you can't do that much. You can't go out anymore for a while. And so that kind of like curtailed everything and also focused us, you know, the you know, we could have done, the story would have changed if it wasn't COVID probably, you know, in a weird way, because I think there would have been other storylines that we might have gone after, but didn't need to because it focused us. Yeah. Did some people self-tape? Like it looked like Neil Young was in um, his house or something. Yeah, no, Neil Young. So that once COVID hit, we did a Zoom with Neil Young, Stevie Nicks, and um, yeah. And then uh, Steve Jordan and Keith Richards. So th those were the only ones. Fantastic. Yeah. It, regardless of the uh, sort of, I guess, compromises you had to make doing the film during COVID, it's absolutely fantastic. And I'd love for you to tell people where and when they can watch it. Well, it's coming out in theaters around the country. It's about 75 theaters on December 12th. Oh, okay. But on the 15th it's where everybody can watch it on VOD video on demand. So it's, you know, it's your spectrums, your, uh, direct TVs, your Amazon primes, your apples, whatever, uh, platform you have, I'm sure you can rent it there. Um, it's really important, you know, because if we, if it does well, then we uh, get streaming later. So hopefully it, it's a great, you know, it, it's, I'm really happy about this film, not just because it's my, my film, these musicians are so lovely and I really love them as brothers. They're funny and they're very giving. And it's about brotherhood and sisterhood of being friendships and, and relationships that last over 50 years. So it's a great, you know, film to play with family, you know, because, you know, not all films are going to be, uh, you know, politically correct in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? You can't always, there's nothing, it's, it's a happy film, as far as I'm concerned. I absolutely agree with you. It's heartwarming and very educational and entertaining. So, well, thank you, Denny.
Thanks, Stacy. All right, you take care. This concludes another episode of the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Remember, there's a book series too. All the books are available in paperback, ebook, and audio via Amazon or the Rock and Roll Nightmares website. That's R O C K N R O L L Nightmares.com. Our official theme song is She's Out for Blood by Fuzzbuster, founded by Lars Cabot. Thank you for listening. <laughs>